0: You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Poonie.
1: Hollywood, what's going on, my friend?
2: Oh, I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation today. This guy is a California brother, my man.
1: Yeah, it's going to be an interesting interview. This is a little bit different for us because he's not really a musician or an artist, but he's done some cool stuff. He was around at a very cool time, and we're going to be talking with producer-director Bob Nalbenian. Now, Bob is responsible for doing these documentaries, the Pioneers of L.A. Hard Rock and Metal documentaries, The Rise of L.A. Thrash Metal all these things, which they're all available on Amazon Prime if you go out there right now. And I just got finished watching all of them, and and they're really well done. Very cool stuff.
2: Amazing interviews that he got. Uh, Don Dawkins, man, he, Don did a great job of telling some stories and kind of just teaching people about the music business and what he saw and what he thought. And he was pretty... Like he said, I hated so-and-so. I hated so-and-so. I don't think so-and-so is talented. Like, he was rough on some folks, Uh, you know, his opinion.
1: It was really, really well done, in-depth interviews. And just, you know, Bob grew up in Huntington Beach, California, back in the 80s. So he was around when everything was kind of exploding there in the L.A. scene. And so he's got some really good stories, and he knows a lot of people, and uh, it'll be interesting to hear from Bob on a lot of this stuff. But the documentaries, just I, I couldn't stop watching them because they don't just talk about a lot of the stuff that you know. They discuss a lot of the bands that you've never heard of because there were a lot more bands on the LA scenes than just the Van Halens, the Rats, and the Motley Crue's, right? There were a lot of bands that were every bit as big as those bands when they were on the club circuit. But, you know, at some point, they became other bands, or at some point, you know, members left and went and did other things, and some bands made it and some bands didn't, right?
2: Oh, yeah, there was there was a point in time I was watching the documentaries and I was writing down rat members. I just stopped. I was like at two pages. I'm like, everybody's been in rat. I'm just going (laughs) to anytime we talk to somebody like how many how much time did you spend in rat? Like, whatever. (laughs) But it's cool that I mean, he had a heavy metal fanzine. Uh, He worked at record companies. You know, he's done documentaries. He was there. He felt it. He saw it. He knew what it meant. He was at the clubs when it was going nuts it's amazing amazing stories
1: yeah it's no doubt so i think you guys are really gonna enjoy this interview that both sunny and i did we had some important questions that we wanted to ask probably for ourselves more than anything else there were some things that i really wanted to know about which i asked and uh sunny the same
2: yeah it was nice to see dave and a lot of those right man ynt doesn't get enough praise i tell you
1: yeah no doubt Uh, But before we get into all that with Bob, we got to do some house cleaning. So we're going to start with this.
0: Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it.
3: Still love it loud? So do we. Rock and Pod returns to Nashville on Saturday, August 25th. Over 25 rock podcasts from all over North America recording on-site. Vinyl and memorabilia dealers selling the best in rock merchandise. And awesome rock musicians and personalities participating in signing sessions and on-stage panel discussions throughout the day. Special guests include current and former members of Corn, Kiss, Angel, Winger, Loudness, Accept, Bangtan. school of rock nashville and school of rock franklin a dbg
2: productions event all right grown ups of the week these are the people that shared us on facebook and retweeted us on twitter uh, we got a bunch this week the power Chord channel tammy sullivan bill elam bill Algie, lady lake music into the storm 71 Kristen kivo HairnetRadio.com, com, alan tate janet eck don corleone that's a scary one. <laughs> Jay Sabluski, Little Fish, Nighthawk, Andrew Jacobs, Bella Lowe's 1966, Dirk Sokolowski, Mark Winder 8, Ogata, our buddy David Hudson, Shawana Lee, Digital Killed, DNR Studio CEO, Metal Empire Mag, Adam Cox, Podcast Rock City, Jody Havnat, Decibel Geek, Rob Alaniz, Chris Sinzak, Tony Masalam, David Cathy, Taka Fumi Katsuki, Vinny Faletti, I Love It Loudcast, Steve Wright, Rodney Dixon, Melodic Dirt, EMZT Radio Podcast, That I, Sean, I Am, Talking Metal, Menkana Katri, Jason Alexander, Popcast, Christian Swain uh, shared us, so that was nice to see, S. Star Shy, John Oxley, 777, Sister Bleeding Heart, Jim McCord, Luciano Urubo, Daryl Alber, Classic Rock Drops, Paul Cristiana, who's a singer actually, uh, Eladio, Fast Vinny, Tom Dust, Platinum Rose Lady, Marcelo Verzi, David A. Williams, Jens Albert Cobbs, Ages of Rock Podcast, Peter Cesare, Courtney Cronin Dold, Jason Kearney, Victor Ruiz, Save Rock and Metal, The Peter Principle, Restrained, who supplies all our music, and rock and roll archaeology. Who uh, shared it after Christian Swain was on the episode. So, tons of shares, tons of retweets. Uh, really appreciate it. And we're we're also uh, really kind of pushing the whole PodChaser.com. So if you haven't checked out PodChaser.com, it's like the IMDb for podcasts, and it's super easy to register. All you need to have is a you can put in a user ID, an email and a password and that's it it doesn't even send a link to your email so you don't have to go through that mobile jumbo and you can immediately start listening to podcasts and start leaving reviews is easy uh making comments is easy liking stuff's easy so check out podchaser.com if you haven't checked it out
1: There you go. Uh, Just like Sonny said, we appreciate each and every one of you guys every week. And also, you guys heard the commercial for Rockin' Pod there. So Rockin' Pod 2, Nashville Rockin' Pod 2, can really help us out by donating in the name of Grown Up Rock. Come on our show, do an episode pick a crank it up spotlight song for us to play yeah we got a bunch of perks go out there and look at (laughs) our perks (laughs) they're pinned to our facebook page uh or you can go to the nashville rock and pod Two uh page and check out all the perks but we got a bunch of perks that we're trying to just raise money this is a totally crowd funded event but it's a cool event nonetheless so if you can make it out to Nashville for Rockin' Pod 2, I highly recommend it. And if not, then you will be the recipient of tons of very cool content that will come your way afterwards. So be a part of all that. We appreciate it. All right, Sonny. So about time to get into this interview, we think?
2: Yeah, let's
4: check it out.
1: All right, you guys. Check out our interview here with Bob Nabenyan.
5: Hey guys, this is Bob Nelbanian from the Inside Metal documentary series, and you are listening to Steven and Sonny from the Growing Up Rock podcast.
1: Please welcome to the Growing Up Rock podcast, Mr. Bob Nalbandian. Hey, Bob, what's going on, my friend?
5: Hey, Steve, how are you doing, man?
1: I'm doing awesome. And with us, as always, is our friend, Hollywood Pooney. What's going on,
2: Sonny? Oh, man, I'm looking forward to this conversation. You know, i got a California brother on the line. Can't go wrong.
1: That's right. The West Coast is the best coast, as I'm told. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so Bob, we kind of get went on a quick rundown of everything that you've done here recently and uh why we're talking to you and how it relates to this show, but go ahead and run down for the listeners that uh don't know who Bob Nalbanion is. Oh wow. Uh, <laughs> I was
5: Myself a little autobiography here. Well, I uh, I am uh, the director of the Inside Metal movie documentary series, which uh, obviously got your attention. I appreciate the very kind words about that. I've uh, we've done actually three titles. Each title is uh, two parts, so it's actually six movies, six DVDs, or you could also watch them streaming. And before that, I worked. You know, I I, I worked at record labels. I worked. In the industry, I, I did podcasts and I, I still do a podcast, uh, very, very not, not very frequently though, but I used to do, uh, uh the Skull uh, skull Sessions, Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast through Roadrunner Records and, and a couple others. But once I got into the mo- doing the movies, I just didn't have time, uh, to really do, uh, the, the podcast. So, uh, uh, you know, and I worked at Roadrunner back in the er- early 90s and, uh, you know, did the record company thing for a little while. I worked for several different magazines as an editor. So, uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, involved in the music business, a good part of the nineties. And then, uh, you know, I just kind of decided to do my own thing. Uh, and that's kind of when, you know, podcasting came about and, uh, you know, started doing that. And that kind of really led into the inside metal documentary series.
1: That's a trip. So, let's go back, Bob. So what was, you're obviously a rock and roll fan, a hard rock, a metal fan, because nobody does and sinks as much time as you've sunk into all this stuff without being somewhat of a fan, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, so let's, let's revisit things in your early years. What, what was your introduction into rock and hard rock music growing up?
5: Oh, well, growing up metal, growing up rock. Yeah, when I was, I I, I was very fortunate to have an older cousin that turned me on to a lot of the great metal bands. And I grew up actually um, in Huntington Beach, California, which is Orange County. It's about an hour south of Los Angeles, for those that don't know. And uh, my cousin was in the valley in Northridge, and we would go up there and he would turn me on to, we're talking early 70s. I mean, when I was like, I mean, I'm I'm 53 now. I'm talking when I was nine, you know, t- 10 years old. He would make me cassettes of early Sabbath, Zeppelin, you know, just these compilation cassettes. Humble Pie, Alice Cooper, 10 Years After, and and Rainbow when Rainbow first, uh, you know, came about when when the Rising album came out. I remember when that first came out. I was just absolutely blown away by that, and uh, still to this day, one of my all time favorite albums and. You know, Zeppelin and Sabbath were always uh, huge favorites. Deep Purple used to make me tape stuff, And that that was kind of my beginning. You know, I, I was into, uh, you know, I love Bachman Turner Overdrive as a kid. You know, yeah. I, I still do. I think they're a great band, very underrated band. And I like some of the little bit more commercial stuff. Uh, his brother would make me tape some more mainstream stuff as a kid. And, you know, back then everyone was into... I guess the, the the boy band at the time was the Osmond brothers, I guess. And sure. you know, stuff like that. Then they got into Elton John and and then eventually into Kiss and all that. But, you know, I was listening to Sabbath and Zeppelin, you know, years before all that. So uh, you know, I, I was fortunate to get an early start on that and really, you know, I just loved the heaviness of it. And I I, I would just listen to those tapes over and over again. And uh so that just got me really into that and then when the 80s came around I really got deep into the new wave of british heavy metal when uh you know iron maiden put their first album out of course saxon uh wheels of steel when that came out domestically here in the states in 1980 of course motorhead ace of spades came out domestically at same year and uh, you know yeah def leppard on through the night all these bands you know and then of course Judas Priest you know at that time were putting out british steel and you know I had seen ACDC with uh, Bon Scott the year before, just, you know, just prior to Bond's passing. And in 1979, the Highway to Hell tour, uh, which is just unbelievable. So
1: what do you remember about that show? Do you remember anything in particular about that show?
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was the, the Long Beach Arena was actually cut in half. So it was uh, it normally seats about fourteen to 15,000. So it probably seated about seven 7,000 or so. Yeah. And you know ACDC were still pretty underground. That was a big place for them to play at the time. I think they had toured with Aerosmith prior on uh, the Powerage tour, but um, you know they were prior to that they were playing clubs like those Starwood and the Whiskey and and stuff like that, which they actually talk about on the uh, first Inside Metal documentary. So uh, that was like their their you know their kind of launch, and you could just tell they were just on fire. They just were at their prime. Bon Scott was just unbelievable. I mean, uh, you know, if you've seen some of those old, uh, uh, you know, the Let There Be Rock movie or the ACDC Rock Goes to College, you know, I mean, it it was like that times 10 even because Hmm. it was like this was their big L.A. show in an arena headlining, Uh, even though it was half arena, it was still like a huge show. And they really wanted to prove themselves. And they did, man. They just. They just tore the roof off that fucking place. It was it was unbelievable. You know, that was uh, when Angus Young used to go out in the audience. You know, he would go on the, one of the roadies would come over and he would got on his shoulders and they would cater him through the whole audience and stuff while he's playing a uh, bad boy boogie. And uh, it was just awesome. It was it, it was a great experience. I mean, for my first concert, it was it was the best. Couldn't ask for more.
1: That was your first concert? yeah whoa i missed that part but holy crap and i mean wow yeah i think
5: 15 at the time
1: yeah i mean you can obviously you're super passionate about it it's amazing do you remember what the first album you bought with your own money was
5: i don't know about with my own money i I mean I, i ended up buying used records all the time i know the first album i got i got as a birthday gift when i turned 11. And it was Black Sabbath Sabotage. The uh, week or two that album came out in 1975. And that album just blew me away. Still, uh, again, to this day, probably in in my top two favorite albums, that along with Rainbow Rising. So uh, uh, you can tell that those early years made such an impact on me still to this day. So much great stuff uh, then. And after I got that album, you know, that's when I started hitting up the used record stores and buying, uh, you know, anything I could from, you know, the Zeppelins Sabbath purple, you know, all uh,
1: the good shit.
5: Yeah. And you know, BTO, you know, even fog hat Nazareth and all that was starting to come out, anything that looked cool. So I, I kind of got a jump, on all that, you know, uh, again, you know, because my cousin turned me on to some of those early bands, and I just kind of started reading Cream and Circus, and and then of course when Kerrang! came out, wow. the very first issue, I got that issue, and that turned me on to the new wave of British heavy metal, and that led me into doing my own fanzine, the, uh, the Headbanger, in 1982, and I did uh, some of the very first uh, write ups for uh, uh, Metallica, Slayer, uh, Megadeth, you know, Armored Saint. Uh And, you know, we covered a lot of the new wave of British heavy metal. That was when the tape trading and the zines were starting to come out. You know, Brian Slagle had a zine then. Ron Quintana in the Bay Area in San Francisco had Metal Mania. And they you know, Kick-Ass Monthly from New York, Bob Maldoni. And, you know, and I did one uh, out of L.A., The Headbanger. Sheila Mars, uh, she was Sheila Gray at the time, had Heavy Metal Thunder. So there were a lot of metal fanzines. And that was where the underground was because – Kerrang! was a UK magazine, so you could only get that in select stores. And of course, Cream Circus and Hip Parader, you know, Hit Parader or, or Cream would do their yearly heavy metal issue, you know. But they wouldn't really touch on the newer new wave of British heavy metal bands. All that came from England, and that just was in, in the fanzines. You know, we covered all that stuff.
1: I'm the same way. I was from a small town, so I I needed Krang Magazine uh, as a uh, telephone line to find out uh, what was new in the UK and what was the new wave of British heavy metal and Crank helped me out a lot so there were a lot of music a lot of bands that you talked about in that uh, last conversation Bob so I think now is a really great time to pick something that maybe meant a lot to you back in those days for us to play what do you, you want to hear let's throw something on the uh, speakers here and, and crank something up wow
5: can you play a long song or uh
1: I can play anything you want. It's my show. I can do whatever the fuck I want, Bob.
5: All right. I love it. Well, why don't <laughs> you uh let's do uh, what I still consider uh I get till this day the uh, greatest song ever written, of course, by uh Rainbow, Richie Blackmore, Ronnie James Dio, Stargazer. When that came out on rising, uh, the, the production, the just the orchestration of that song, the bigness, Dio's vocals. Blackmore's guitar lead, it's just monstrous song.
2: So, Bob, like, I'm growing up, I wanted to be a cowboy, an actor. I wanted to fly jets because it's a stupid top gun. I wanted to be a rock star. And I ended up in retail. You go to CSU Long Beach and study PR and journalism. So, obviously, you had a clue what you wanted to do early on.
5: Yeah, uh, kind of. Uh, you know, I hated school. I, went, I did go to Long Beach State. Uh, I was originally trying to get into the business. That field was impacted. So, I thought, yeah, PR which helped me. I mean, I did work, uh, like I said, at some record companies and uh, a couple of PR firms and and magazines. So, you know, that was definitely, you know, helpful in that way. But, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to do something in music. Or I knew I didn't want to do the regular nine to five kind of job. I wasn't a musician. At the time I was going to college, I was actually Managing a band that were uh, pretty successful locally, actually a band called Eden, and we had a uh, record deal with Enigma Records, Enigma Restless, and we were doing some pretty big shows. I mean, we were uh, actually signed with a label, I think in '84, late '84. Record didn't come out till I think March of '86, right around the same time Master of Puppets came out. I, I remember, and uh, it did great on C We had two songs in Heavy Rotation and you know, Z Rock, the syndicated station back in the day, the rock station played it all the time and Metal Shop and all that. And we did shows with Dawkins and Great White Editor by Meadows and a few other shows. And then uh the band broke up shortly after the A and R guy left the label. And uh so the label basically just shelved the band, so to speak. So it was uh you know, and then they signed poison after us, of course. We were supposed to be the first man on their capital distribution deal. And then they signed our A and R guy leaves. Then it was all about poison. I guess he didn't leave on the best of terms. So they're kind of like, Well, Eden was his man. Let's fuck them over. And, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, even though we were getting all this radio playing, we were doing big shows and all, they, they couldn't care less, it seems. So that was kind of unfortunate. That led me into, you know, doing a little bit more management. That led me into working at uh uh Roadrunner and some other stuff so uh uh yeah it just kind of all started to happen you know i didn't i didn't really plan for anything so uh you know
2: yeah you talk about Roadrunner and i think you worked for Bizarre Straight Records too do you remember the artists you initially worked with at those two labels
5: yeah i Roadrunner at the time it was uh 91 i worked there for about uh, almost 2 years i think uh it was it late 90 i think it was 91 or uh that uh, i started there that was a time when Sepultura Arise had come out. And that was their biggest uh, band at the time. You know, this was, you know, before, long before Slipknot uh, and, and of course, Nickelback and all that kind of stuff. Typo Negative had just signed and we did their first album, Slow, Deep, and Hard, which was starting to get, build a buzz for them. But, uh, definitely King Diamond and, uh, Sepultura were the big bands at the time. And, and then they just had a slew of, just you know the the total thrash uh, and death metal bands you know that, that was the beginning you know Obituary, Deicide, uh, Malevolent Creation, uh, Annihilator you know uh, all those bands Gore Guts you know they were all uh, on Roadrunner and uh, it was it was good it was great times man there was a great band that I was working called Last Crack that I think should have been huge their second album they did Burning Time classic album Dave Jordan produced it uh who had done Alice in Chains and Jane's Addiction. And I think that album could have really been Roadrunner's Breakthrough prior to uh not in in typo breaking. But uh so it was good times. It was a learning experience for me because I never worked for a label and I was pretty much running their LA office. I was a one man band in LA. I I uh had uh an office on Sun- a small office I shared on sunset with a management company and uh you know it was kind of a bit unorganized on how the structure was because I was doing, you know, everything on the West Coast from retail to radio promotions to, uh, you know, press and publicity to a bit of A&R, You know, I was sending tapes to Monty all the time. Uh, you know, and I, I, have since still have a great relationship with Monty Connor, the, uh, AR guy who now, of course, is the vice president over at, uh, Nuclear Blast. And, uh, uh, you know, as I said, they hosted my, uh, Skull Sessions podcast in the, uh, 2000s when I did that and uh, so uh, yeah still got a good relationship Uh, I mean I don't really know anyone at the label now since they sold out to Warner Brothers but uh, yeah it it was a great time it was the early 90s and it was just when you know just before grunge started uh, to really start happening and uh, you know metal was still huge you know Pantera Cowboys from Hell just came out and you know all these great new bands were were coming out and it was, you know, I was living on my own in L.A. and uh, in my early 20s and uh, going to shows every other night. And it was it was great. And same with Bizarre Straight. I, I you know, left Roadrunner, went straight to uh, Bazaar Straight, who was a uh, Herb Cohen's label. Uh, uh, Rest in peace, Herb. He uh, started the label. You may remember back in the 60s with Frank Zappa. Uh, that's how, how early that, uh, you know, the Bizarre label went. He started with Zappa, had, you know, the first couple Alice Cooper records, uh, which were on the straight label. It was kind of weird how they uh, did that. And he had Screaming Jay Hawkins and Tom Waits and anything that was bizarre or out of the ordinary. Uh, Herb was the first guy to to do what you would call now alternative music. I mean, anything that was off the beaten trail, you know, he, he, uh, even Lenny Bruce, I believe, did uh, records through uh, a Bizarre Straight. So we did a lot of that catalog stuff because it was all reissued through Rhino. So we worked a lot of that and they had a couple of great artists, a, a band that I was real close with armed forces, which was all actually Michael Henry's band, who was the, uh, also rest in peace. He passed away in the late nineties. He was the uh, singer for, uh, Eden who I had managed previously. So they were signed to a uh, bizarre straight. And, uh, it was just great working with uh, Herb and uh, uh Bob Duffy and, uh, you know uh much different experience than roadrunner roadrunner was signing like you know 10 bands a month you know with bizarre straight we were mostly working catalog stuff so it was a lot more easy going and laid back and uh uh but uh definitely good times
2: so you're doing all that stuff and then somehow the subject of documentaries come up like who do you want to blame for that bright idea <laughs> uh, we're,
5: we're so we're still back in the early 90s here i did uh <laughs> A lot of stuff came in between then. Yeah, after the label thing, I kind of just started doing my own thing and just did a lot of writing. You know, I stopped doing the the fanzine. Uh, I did Shockwaves as a print mag for a couple issues. And about you know, at that time it was super expensive. You know, to to print. Uh, you know, especially with a full color glossy cover. So uh, that was when online stuff started to come around, and Hard Radio was uh, the uh, pioneers of internet radio. Tracy Barnes actually pioneered internet radio officially like the first internet radio station to actually be licensed by BMI and ASCAP uh, back in 1996 and I think I started with hard radio around uh, 98 no 97 I think and we just did the shockwaves online and that led into doing podcasts Uh, in the early 2000s he turned me on to you know when podcasting first started he said, uh, you know, you should look into doing a podcast. And uh, I still do the Shockwaves Hard Radio podcast. Uh, I've been doing it for several years. I've only up to like 80-something episodes. So you can tell I I only release a few episodes per year. These days, uh, it's not nearly as consistent. But I, I still keep it going because I still love it. You, know, you can find that at hardradio.com uh, and also on iTunes
1: why only a couple times a year is it just too much of a painstaking pain in the ass to edit and do everything to put the show up or how come you only do it a couple times a year
5: i would say i do it about five times five to six uh five to six episodes per year yeah depending on you know what it just gives me the freedom to do it whenever i have time and since i started the documentaries yeah i haven't had the time to really uh I think the last one I put up was an interview of Jeff Tate and Lizzie Borden, yeah. which I did about three weeks ago. A great interview with, with both those artists. And It's, it's very old school. You know, we, we talk about old school stuff. So I concentrate on mostly the classic metal artists, but I, I enjoy it. I just, I wish I had time. I wish I had time to uh, continue on with the old Shockwaves uh, Skull Sessions podcast. That was uh, kind of like a uh, discussion. Uh, roundtable discussion. style. So I would have up to, you know, three or four people like what we're doing here, but with, you know, a journalist, you know, like a Malcolm Dome out of England, Martin Popoff out of, you know, Canada and Monty Connor out of New York, and then somebody from Germany. And I would have to try to coordinate, of course, with all the time differences, coordinate a Skype call. And, uh, sometimes it was a bit of a cluster, but, uh, there were some really good episodes. So, uh, it was good It just you know since I started doing the documentaries, I had to uh set my priorities straight I and uh, yeah, I didn't really have time to uh continue on with that,
1: so how do you end up getting to the documentaries
5: well that that goes with the podcast on the uh uh skull sessions uh one of the episodes I did was on producers, and I think I had John Bush on there martin Popoff and Joe Floyd. Uh, who uh, I knew very well from the band Warrior.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about Joe here in a minute.
5: <laughs> yeah, Joe, I mean, fighting for the earth, I'll go on record sa- saying one of the greatest 80s metal records, one of the most underground classic 80s metal records. If you don't have that record, definitely bought it, buy it. He was a mastermind. He formed the band. He wrote all the music. He produced it. And he was an awesome producer, and he, he got into doing his own production. Uh, silver cloud uh, studios and his uh, partner is a uh, warren croyle who was a uh, 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 big in the music business in the 90s in la and they partnered up and they had a real successful uh, production company and warren since then and i guess starting in the early 2000s got into uh, movies and doing uh, a lot of documentaries and uh, a lot of conspiracy movies on aliens bigfoot all that kind of stuff and did still does very, very well with those. Anything you see on Bigfoot, like on Netflix, uh, any of the Bigfoot movies or uh, aliens and all that, chances are they're, they're a uh, uh, Warren Croyle discovering Bigfoot. I think uh, that's his title, but he was always a metalhead. head. And uh, Joe told me after the interview we did after the podcast, he said, you know, Warren and I were talking about doing a, a LA metal documentary and, you know, he's uh, given me the okay to do it, but I need someone to direct it. He said, I'll film the interviews and stuff. And uh, I told him, dude, I'd love to do it. And we chatted and we had a, you know, three-way conversation because Warren lives way up in Northern California. And we, uh, uh, you know, all came to terms on how we were going to do it. And we kind of discussed that we should make it a series, at least the LA one, because we can't really do a full documentary on the LA metal scene in just one movie. So, it, it was so we turned out making it into three titles, and that wasn't enough. So we had to do a part one and part two for each title because we just had too much material to fit into one DVD. So it's uh, three titles are out, and they're each two volumes. The first one, the pioneers of LA hard rock and metal, which basically touches the uh, you know the Van Halen era, so to speak, from like seventy five to nineteen eighty eighty one. And the second one is the L.A. metal scene explodes. And that was the big explosion of L.A. metal. You know, Wasp, Armored Saint, of course, Quiet Riot released Metal Health, Motley Crue, Black and Blue, Rough Cut, Malice, Warrior, all these bands. Rat, of course, were getting deals. And the scene just completely exploded. And that was around, you know, from 81 to 86. And then the third title, we I didn't really want to – you know, we we talked about, we said, you know, what's the point of really going past 86? That hair metal thing has been overdone and there's nothing new we could really talk about, you know, from the poisons, warrants, even the Guns and Roses. You know, they've got their VH1 documentaries and all that on that. So there's really nothing. And that wasn't really my scene, you know. So I really wanted to do something on the L.A. thrash scene because I always felt that the thrash metal bands and Los Angeles in particular just got overshadowed by all the glam uh, shit that was out there, you
1: know. Let me back up just a second because I want to clarify, I want to uh, understand everything that you're telling us. So I got to revisit the Joe Floyd thing. So you're doing a podcast, you're interviewing Joe Floyd. And after the interview, Joe just basically says, hey, we're going to do this thing and we need somebody to direct. I mean, is that what I'm understanding or no?
5: Yeah, yeah well, you know, I knew Joe from before. Uh-huh. And, you know, after the interview, he said, hey, I want to talk to you about something. So he first asked if I'd like to be involved. And I thought he just needed help doing the documentary. I said, dude, I would love to be involved in any way. And then he came to me and said, well, I want you to direct it.
1: Because <laughs> you've never directed anything, right?
5: Well, never. And I, and I told him that. I said, well, I never directed. And he actually really... <laughs> Yeah, I got to give Joe a lot of credit for giving me that, that you know, confidence. He said, dude, the way you direct the podcast and the questions you, uh, you know, if, if you could do this in, in video form, you know, you, you could definitely do it. And it was something that I wanted to do. My my partner who got involved afterwards, because Joe got pretty involved with Warrior doing, you know, uh, you know Warrior Reunited around that time, 2012, 13, and did a bunch of shows in Europe. So he had to, uh you know, take that as priority. And so I brought a uh, good friend, Carl Alvarez, who I knew from Huntington Beach, longtime metalhead. Prior to doing the podcast or to doing the documentaries, Carl and I did a Shockwaves videocast. And you could actually still see those if you go on YouTube. Just uh, put in my name or put in Shockwaves videocast. And I interviewed uh, Michael Shanker and Biff Byford from Saxon. But Anvil, uh, Thin Lizzy, John Cornarens, and John Sutherland were two of the LA pioneers, and we did about four or five uh, video casts. Uh, Herman Rarebell, and uh, that was before the uh, documentary. So both Warren and Joe had seen the video casts and uh, liked what they saw, and uh, they both said, "Yeah, you, you you know you should direct this." And I said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll do it, man. I, I would love to." And I kind of took full reign. And I didn't realize what I was getting myself into, but uh, it was a lot of work down the road. And we just started calling up everyone I knew, you know, musicians, you know, doing the fanzine from back in the '80s. I knew a lot of these guys that we interviewed, uh, including the Metallica guys. I knew from you know, I knew Lars when he first moved to Newport Beach in 1980. So all these guys I kind of knew on a personal basis or had interviewed before. So you know getting the interviews were were pretty easy it was just the editing process that really hit us hard cuz we had never done anything like that and to edit a movie joe and i and, and thank god carl got involved at that point and uh, uh helped uh, you know quite a bit on on some of the latter filming and the editing process and we just learned as we went man and it was it was a hell of a lot of fun
2: now watching all the movies and uh hearing some other interviews you have a special relationship with Lars from Metallica. How did you guys meet and how did that relationship happen? Well, Lars, that was through a
5: friend of mine, Patrick Scott, who lived in uh, Huntington Beach with me. And in the uh, early 80s, he and I would go record store shopping all the time. And uh, we were, you know, he was like my partner in crime in the new wave of British heavy metal. We were like the Orange County metal heads that would get, you know, there was a store called Music Market in Costa Mesa. And uh, we actually never met Lars at the time, but the guy behind the counter would always say there's some da- uh, some Dutch kid would always buy the stuff we were looking for before we could get to it. And we're like, who the hell is this Dutch kid? He call him a Dutch kid. <laughs> and, and later we found out that that was Lars. Because I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Pat met him through a recycler ad, through the very first ad that Lars put out for a band and it said drummer looking for a band to form influences motorhead diamond head saxon and tigers of pantang something like that and pat freaked out and called the guy because pat was actually a practicing guitarist not very proficient at the time but pat became friends with him and pat called me up dude you gotta meet this guy's you know and this is before he was in metallica this is when he was just starting to form the band you know before he met james And uh, we would go to Lars's house and Pat would say, dude, you got to come over to this guy's house. He's got the ultimate record collection. And we just were blown away by his collection. And he would make, uh, you know, Pat, these compilation tapes and, you know, that Pat would you know, make for me. And, you know, of of all the rare UK metal singles and stuff that were real, even apart from the neat singles and the stuff that were available, I mean, Lars had... You know, everything. He had, you know, Maiden Soundhouse tapes. I mean, you name it, Lars had it. So
1: I mean, he was basically a rich kid from what I understand because of his dad's stature, right?
5: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really say rich kid. I mean, he lived in Newport Beach, which is obviously a very well-off uh, community. He lived in a condo. So I think it was like a two-bedroom, maybe three-bedroom. I, I never saw the whole house. We would just kind of go into his room. They, they did have a spare room where he had the drums and, and that kind of freaked me out. I go, dude, as you may know, Newport Beach is a very conservative town, and I'm thinking, how can you play drums in th- th- the house? You know, don't the neighbors come
1: in? In a condo, at that?
5: Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, do the neighbors complain? He's kind of like, I don't give a fuck, and you know, that kind of attitude. I'm like, damn, this dude's cool. I like this guy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he, I mean, I, he, I know he was working at a gas station at the time, so although his his, his dad obviously was, was well off. He was a a professional tennis player for like the older league, but I wouldn't say he was like a, a a real rich, you know, super rich kid that was, you know, like I said, he was working, so he wasn't spoiled. He worked at a gas station and a couple other places, I think before, uh, before they moved to uh, San Francisco.
1: So in judging and watching some of the, the first couple of documentaries, You paint the picture, or the musicians that you interview paint the picture of basically Van Halen getting signed was sort of the trigger to the L.A. rock and metal scene getting off the ground. Is that kind of how it was? I mean, that's that's how it was portrayed to me. Was that your perception as well?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were obviously L.A. bands, L.A. hard rock bands that were signed prior to Van Halen, you know, uh, Legs Diamond. Uh, we're a great L.A. band, a very underrated band that uh, signed prior to Van Halen. Y&T out of uh, San Francisco. Uh, they were going by yesterday and today at the time. Uh, they had a couple records out before the Earthshaker came out on A&M, uh, their debut and struck down. And they were signed uh, just prior to Van Halen. Uh, and they came to L.A. all the time, like on a monthly basis.
1: Bob, I'm going to caution you here. Be very careful, because when you start talking Y&T, our friend Sonny there gets a little bit crazy.
2: oh In a good way or a bad way? Good way. Huge Y&T fan. Huge. Well, you're a
5: Bay Area guy, so I would assume you are. Uh, yes. Did you see them in the early days? I, mean, I don't know how, how old you are, uh, uh, Sonny, but did uh, you see them before they
2: uh, uh, in the club days? Yeah, so I just saw them for the 44th time. Wow. So, um, and I really kind of got into them late, Uh, really, 84, 85 is when I started really noticing them, uh, because I kind of got into music a little bit later. But, uh, you know, they played Halloween every year, they played New Year's Eve every year, so you can catch them as much as you wanted. Oh, yeah.
5: And, you know, they played L.A. all the time at the Golden Bear, at, you know, the Starwood, at the Whiskey. I saw them play the Woodstock Club, which was the greatest club in Anaheim, uh, and Metallica opened for them. And that was on, actually, when Black Tiger just came out. Uh, so they were still playing the clubs up and through Black Tiger. And, uh, man, what a show. I just saw uh, Y&T recently, not too long ago, in Santa Cruz, packed the, the place. And, you know, of course, it's only Medichetti. All the other original members have sadly passed on. Right. and medicetti still i mean there's certain bands that you know go out with one original member that should not be going out under that name but dave medicetti you know i put him in in the same category as like a dave mustaine dave mustaine is megadeth dave Medichetti really was ynt he wrote pretty much most of the material he sang played guitar you know and, and like i said all the other guys have passed and he's got a, such a killer band and he still sounds amazing. He plays incredible. As vo- vocals are still just pristine, you know. So just to say, anyone that sees Y&T playing, go check them out, man. They are as good as they have ever been.
1: Yeah, we're 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 all in agreement on Y&T. Both Sonny and I are are fans of Y&T. Sunny a little bit more so than myself because he is a Bay Area guy, but. Uh we both uh love Y and T. I got into Y and T around uh Mean Street.
2: Right. Yeah. And since we're talking about YNT, I mean, you've been around the scene, you've obviously studied it, you've done everything for magazines to documentaries. Give us your opinion on why isn't Y and T massive? Like how how did they miss out? They were there. They were there at the right time, they had the right music, they had the talent. God, shouldn't they be as big as White Snake?
5: yeah i mean i agree i think uh you know it's just those things i mean they are one of the hardest working bands always were you know still continue on till this day out there touring you know constantly you know they've been consistent they never broke up and it is amazing and it's sad in a way to see that they never i mean they broke pretty big you know with summertime girls and all that and it's kind of unfortunate that that's what everyone remembers them and i think the big yeah, I was I'm actually involved in a the uh, Y&T documentary that's coming out. They actually interviewed me. I was very honored that they interviewed me for that. You know, we talked about it there. I think uh, so many people thought that when Summertime Girls hit that Y&T were just some new LA band, and and that's why people that watch that you know I, I, again to go back to the inside metal, the pioneers of LA hard rock and metal, the first movie part one and part two that tells a scene of, of the story of how the scene really started and how these bands you know got to where they were so many people don't realize that Y&T were around since 1973 1974 you know i mean way before van hale but people tend to think that when summertime girls came out oh they're just a new hair metal band just you know a typical commercial hair metal band. I think that kind of hurt them. That they never really, people really no, never understood their history, and they just kind of knew them as a radio hit band. Uh, but they were so much more than that, as, as you guys know. And if you've seen them live, you would see that. But you know, I think I don't know. And you know, a lot of people say, you know, of course, Sammy Hager coming from the Bay Area, who was battling out around the same time as as YNT yeah it's you know you could compare it to the LA bands you could say with Van Halen you know you had obviously so many bands competing along with them Quiet Riot with Randy Rhoads you had George Lynch's old band Exciter who were right alongside Van Halen you had Snow who were a little bit under Van Halen you had uh Wolfgang who were right up there who eventually uh turned into autograph uh, but you had all those bands and you're like, well, why, you know, Legs Diamond that were actually before Van Halen. Uh, why didn't all, any of those bands make it and Van Halen took off? I think you can kind of say the same thing with the Bay Area. I think when when Sammy Hager kind of took off, that was kind of the Bay Area heart. You know, of course you had Journey, uh, who were kind of a progressive band at that time before Steve Perry. Then they became a very AOR band, as you know. And you had Santana and all that, but the hard rock you know, icon from San, San Francisco, you, you, you only usually only had one, you know, it wasn't the cookie cutter mentality as it was in the mid eighties in the late seventies up till about 83, 82, 83. If you had one Van Halen, you did not want another one that the record company said, Oh, well, we already got Van Halen. We're moving on to punk. We're moving on to new wave. And I think that's what happened with Y and T after, uh, you know, I mean, Y and T were signed to London records on those first two records, Label didn't really do much for him. The band was still experimenting. I mean, if you compare that to the Van Halen record, the first y records, production-wise, it's, it's worlds apart. I mean, Van Halen had Ted Templeman. He made that—I mean, I don't know if people know how important Ted Templeman was to the sound of Van Halen and to get that killer production and that really big arena rock sound— Unfortunately, Y&T didn't have that uh in their early records. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I think uh, again, going back to Hager, when when he took off, I think a lot of the San Francisco people thought, well, you know, Hager's kind of scoffing. Y and T are our local heroes, and they kind of kept them as such, and you know, they didn't want another band that sounded not that, I mean, a lot of people compared Medicetty's voice to Hager, obviously. And uh a lot of you know, people in the industry had compared uh, Y&T to Hager. Well, there's already Sammy Hager. We don't need another one. So I don't know. I don't know if that's the case or not. I mean, you never know, uh, you know, what it is with that. But I think they just kind of had uh, bad luck. I mean, really, Van Halen got lucky with that debut. Everything was done right. I mean, it was just, you know, spot on production wise. He had Warner Brothers, who really didn't have a metal band. They were working at the time. I mean, of course, they had you know, Sabbath were kind of over with, Alice Cooper, that weren't doing much. So they wanted a young, hot metal band. You know, there's so much politics that come into why did this band make it or why didn't this band? You know, I think, you know, they had the, they were signed to the right label at the right time with the right producer. And that's why Van Halen and they were fucking great. You know, Van Halen. Not to say y uh, uh t weren't, but, you know, you take the y records, early records and compared to Van Halen. You could definitely hear that it's not nearly, uh, uh, not just production-wise, but arrangement-wise and stuff. It's I think Y&T were a live band, and they weren't really ready to to be a studio band up until, I think, when uh, Earthshaker came out, their first yeah. on a and I think that was when they really kind of came into their own, and I think that record should have been huge. I don't think uh, A&M really pushed that hard enough. I know it was huge, obviously, in San Francisco, uh you know, Y&T were gods in the Bay Area when that album and Black Tiger came out. But uh, I think they were a little too late at the time. By the time, you know, Mean Street and all that came about, that was when they were just bunched into the MTV hair metal category, you know,
2: unfortunately. Yeah. But they were so much more than that. You're right. So you talk about a little bit in your documentaries, new wave of British heavy metal is starting to die off. Americans have kind of taken over. Like, in your opinion, like, what band kind of turned the tide that started turning heads saying Americans are here to play too? Well, if you're
5: talking about the heaviness, of, without yeah. question, Metallica, I mean, Metallica changed everything because at that time, you know, 82, 83, Metallica, I mean, Metallica, you got to remember all those bands, not only the thrash bands, but of course, you know, some the, a lot of the heavier bands, are, you know, Armored Saint, even guys in Black and Blue, and and other bands, they were all into the very inspired by the new wave of British heavy metal. Whether it be Duff, Leopard, Saxon, Iron Maiden, you know, or the more underground bands. But you know, uh, Lars was the one that really embraced the underground. I mean, he was all about you know the new wave of British heavy metal bands. You know, he uh, several times. You know, uh, we we'll talk about you know not just Saxon, but you know Diamond Head, you know uh, Raven, Venom, of course, and you know that really. Rubbed off on on them and Anthrax and of course Slayer and Merciful Fight. Fate was another band that came out of Denmark. You know, just just after uh, the new wave of British heavy metal, and they made a huge impact. I think on on the thrash metal uh, scene of Los Angeles, along with the new wave of British heavy metal. So that's why in the uh, new documentary, the last one, uh the latest one I did, uh, the Rise of L.A. Thrash Metal, uh, I, I believe it's part one that has a whole section a whole chapter devoted to the new wave of British heavy metal because that was such uh, an inspiration. Uh, and we even interview uh, Brian Tatler of Diamond Head, uh, John Gallagher of Raven, and uh, uh, Wolf Hoffman and Peter Bolt from Accept. Uh, a lot of people credit Accept as being one of the first thrash bands with, uh, you know, Fast as a Shark being one of the, uh, the pioneering songs of thrash metal. So, uh, yeah, uh, but I, I know I ramble on, but to answer your question, I would say uh, undoubtedly Metallica
1: yeah you got some amazing footage in these documentaries bob it's it's pretty incredible some of the stuff i mean a lot of it's probably never been seen before or at least not been seen in many many years where where did all this stuff come from how how were you able to procure all this stuff
5: well i gotta thank uh all my friends you know always being a, a big fan of the underground metal scene, tape trading and and all this. I, I got a lot of friends that uh, filmed stuff from back in the day. A lot of the bands gave us old footage. I, I, even going back to before video, if you talk about the uh, first uh, title, The Pioneers of L.A. Hard Rock and Metal, which gets into the late 70s before video came into form. I mean, you know, we got some great footage of snow a la carte, quiet riot with randy rhodes and that was all given to us by the artist or the or the manager uh david forrest gave us that great uh, footage and a good friend of mine uh alan wood who was a uh, who's in the documentaries he was uh, real big on, on the local scene back in those days and uh, he had he's just got archives of stuff and you know unfortunately we didn't we didn't have a big budget but I just knew these guys on a personal level, so they contributed for free. And, of course, photographers, as I mentioned, Kevin Estrada and so many other great photographers that I knew chipped in with a lot of stuff. The late great Gina Zamborelli uh, gave us tons of photos and flyers. And uh, so it was really accumulation of that, just the fans and the artists that, uh, you know, contributed to the cause.
1: Yeah. And they all came together as kind of a crowdsourcing thing where everybody was willing to go in on it because they, uh, they loved it so much.
5: Yeah. I think they really believed in it. I mean, you know, like I said, I kind of had a, a relationship with these people, you know, some of the people I interviewed that I didn't know as well, were a little bit skeptical because, you know, they said, oh man, so many that, you know, when the movie came out, and started to do well. And you know, the rise of LA or the first movie, Pioneers was on Access TV and and other stuff. And people were going, Wow, you know, you you actually did it. You don't know how many people told me they were gonna do a documentary that wanted to interview us. We did interviews, nothing ever came about. So I think, especially after that first one came out, and, and once they saw the trailers too, we put up the trailers on YouTube prior to the movies, they kind of saw it was real. So they kind of realized. You know, because a lot of them were skeptical about they didn't want to look bad. They didn't want to think it was it was this going to be kind of something like Penelope did with, uh, you know, a decline of metal civilization that made a lot of these artists kind of look bad. Yeah. You know, Uh. you know, because a lot of these documentaries kind of bash on the L.A. scene. And my thing was, no, no, we just want to get your story, man. That was what was important on this documentary. You tell the story, man. We're interviewing you about this. So. I think everyone was real pleased at at that angle, and uh, I never went for the dirt. You know, there were stuff on there that I could have used. I didn't. You know, some of the artists said, uh, uh, you know, I called them and said, "Hey, if, if you if, please, don't use that one part." I said, "No problem, dude. I'm, I'm. You know, if you don't want me to uh, include it, I, I'm totally, you know, cool with that." So, you know, whereas a lot of other, you know, people say, "Oh, well, you signed a release, and I could put whatever I want on there," you know. Yeah, you know, screw that, you know. So I think people realize that I was I because I was a huge fan of that, you know. Why would I want to make the scene or them look bad, you know? So I think uh, gaining a lot of trust was important, you know. Um, I know I'm getting off track, but
1: <laughs> well, I totally get your point, and yeah, I could tell in just the filming of some of the individuals that were speaking, you could tell that probably they didn't have the greatest memories of some of this stuff and there was probably opportunity for them to be bitter at points but to me didn't necessarily come off that way uh yeah. in those cases so i completely get what you're saying the first documentary you did the narration uh was that always the plan and you know how did you end up getting john bush and dave ellison to narrate later on
5: well, there really wasn't a plan to do anything you just said, uh, you know, then I came to the uh, narration and people said, well, dude, you should narrate. I mean, it's your, uh, I did all the interviews, you know, uh, asked all the questions. Carl helped me with, with a, f- a few of the interviews and, uh, did a great job. And he, he of course filmed uh, about half of the interviews and, and so did Joe and Joe did the other half. And, uh, but since, uh, I figured, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And, uh, it it turned out great. I uh, people were happy with it. I you know people always say no one's really happy with their own voice. I wasn't really happy with the way it came out, and I thought, well, for the second one, let's get an artist that who was involved in that scene to do it. And I've been friends with John Bush since 1982, uh, very close friends. So uh, he's obviously in the movies, and he's in the second title, which is the LA metal scene explodes, mm-hmm. and. Um, I wrote out the narration, and I, I sent it to him, and he, he read over it. He goes, yeah, I'd love to do it. So he went into the studio and did it. And for the uh, Rise of L.A. Thrash Metal, I said, well, let's get someone that represents that scene. And I thought no one better than uh, you know David Allison, David Allison, or Dave Mustaine. Uh, I know D- Dave Mustaine's uh, schedule was, was very crazy uh, during that time. But Ellison was always such a huge fan. And he came over from the Midwest right during, you know, the, the beginning of, you know, Megadeth and saw everything firsthand and he really knew all these bands. And I wanted someone that really was involved in that to do the narration to get the feel for it. And again I wrote it out for him and uh he, he looked it over and said, This is great. I'd love to do it. And uh uh and, and i've known dave since since the megadeth's beginning you know uh, dave uh, dave i've known dave mustaine since the metallica days but uh david ellison the the day uh we, we did the first megadeth interview in january of 84 in the headbanger uh with david ellison and uh, dave mustaine when they first formed so you know my relationship with both the daves go go way back and uh yeah I've I've always loved Dave I love that he wrote books and he had done some uh, voiceover in the past and you know I I thought he was a perfect fit for for the Rise of LA thrash Metal
2: There are some amazing conversations amazing interviews some crazy stories on on this on these documentaries but the one that I have absolutely got to mention for the fans is by Mitch Perry and it's the top 3 reasons Quit Drinking by Mitch Perry. <laughs> I have to share this. They're too good. I love it. Number three, Chris Holmes says, you remind me of me when I drink. Wow. <laughs> number two, Sharon Osborne saying that you'd be a bad influence on Ozzy. And number one, Jeff Healy has to walk you back to your hotel room. <laughs> Damn, that guy has got to be nuts. <laughs> he, he was insane back in the day from what I heard drinking
5: wow. i mean he's sober now he's he's uh, he's been sober for years but he looks uh, like he's
1: had a hard life
5: yeah he looks like he's he looks like he's, he's been through a lot and I, from what i understand he has uh <laughs> so uh, i didn't know him back then i remember seeing him live with steeler uh he was Inge's replacement i believe right. uh, yeah
1: that's right
5: uh, kurt, kurt james and then uh, uh i believe mitch perry and, uh, you know, he went on to play with Michael Schenker and, uh, you know, he, he had got clean th- then, but he was in a lot of local bands, too, uh, at the time in the er- early 80s, before he joined, uh, you know, MSG and all those bands. So uh, and even before Steeler. So, uh, yeah, he, he, you know, a lot of those, ba- a lot of those bands, you know, everyone talks about the uh, the mid 80s or the late 80s, you know, the poison era, the Motley Crue is the debauchery, but from all the interviews I I talked to, they said that was nothing, nothing compared to the late 70s Starwood era where basically anything went and anything did go at that club for a while. I was a little bit too young to to ever make it into the Starwood because that was actually an 18 and over club, whereas the Whiskey and other clubs were all ages. But that place, the the, the stories I got off camera would blow your fucking mind.
1: Who had the best stories?
5: Oh, the, uh, they all, you, you mean off camera or on camera?
1: Uh, off camera. Who? <laughs> well, obviously the best stories came off camera because yeah. it was off camera. So who had the best <laughs> stories off camera?
5: You like the way I'm trying to stall you here? Uh, uh, Greg Leon had some, you know, when we were just talking and bullshitting after he had some great stories. Uh, Mitch Perry, uh, as you talk, had some great stories. Stephen Quadros from Snow. Uh, that guy's a character. Uh, he had a great story, which I wish he wouldn't mind us using it. I think he's he, uh, he talks about it on the interview I did with uh, him on the uh, uh, T-Radio V Inside Metal show, but it was too long to put, to piece together for the documentary. He talks about his, his run-in with Phil Spector back in the uh, late 70s, which was A pretty insane story. Ryan O'Brien was just telling stories after stories about the insanity at the Starwood. Scotty Waller from Smile, basically. And I know they're not—they're not bullshitting because they all basically told the same things that happened. Don Dockin went on forever (laughs) talking about great stories that happened back then. Some of them we included. A lot of them we didn't. But yeah, there were there were a lot of a lot of crazy stories about. The Starwood back then, you gotta remember back then there was no internet, there were no cell phones, there was no sure. worry, there was no tabloids uh really at the time that were, you know, it was it was basically anything goes, and the women were out to party just as much as the guys. I mean, quaaludes and, and cocaine were like thought of as normal, just as normal as drinking, you know. Um uh, again, this was before my time, unfortunately. Uh <laughs> but of the stuff that was said because we, we all thought we lived the crazy lives in the late 80s and out through the early 90s and stuff, but hearing what these guys said and the stories that went on there, it's like, holy shit, man. I mean, you've heard about all those Zeppelin stories. I mean, another guy that told great Zeppelin stories, Roger Romeo and, and John Hyde. Uh, John Hyde was on, you know, was in Detective, who were like, you know, uh, Zeppelin's prodigy band on Swan Song, so they hung out with Zeppelin all the time, and You know, a couple of the stories he told, that great John Bonham story uh, of of him sitting on his lap and and actually jamming with Zeppelin at SIR for three hours, you know, while John Bonham was ill during the presence tour. So uh, but he told some other outrageous stories about, you know, the, the stuff you've you've all read about, you know, in Hammer of the Gods or other movies about the riot house and uh, the crazy stuff you just kind of expanded on some of those those uh things and uh uh just just you know just just great stuff there are a lot of david Lee Roth stories out there i'll tell you that I bet. Uh, some of the craziness about Van Halen you know again these guys trusted me and that's why you know i'm telling you i'm not telling you the exact stories but yeah. you know I mean you could ma imma- i mean it's no secret for one you, you everyone knew about the debauchery and the craziness and You know, the guy that owned the Starwood was uh, uh, Eddie Nash, who was basically a mafia dude. And uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie uh, Wonderland.
1: I've seen that movie, but also I think uh, he was kind of loosely portrayed in Boogie Nights, right?
5: Uh, They say that. I don't know if that's really the case. I think they they took little, kind of like Spinal Tap, took stuff out of Saxon and Sabbath and kind of, Made it their own, right? But uh, actually, uh, Eric Bogosian, character in uh, he plays uh, uh, Eddie Nash in uh, Wonderland, yeah. uh, Which also Val Kilmer plays John Holmes. Yep. Uh, But you know there was a whole murder uh, uh, investigation on that, and I mean that that was kind of crazy shit that went on at the Starwood. It was you know they said that there was just you know pounds of cocaine you know in in the offices there and quaaludes. You know, they say it was just insane. But, uh, you know, th- those, again, were different times. But, you know, I, I don't know how much the, uh, these artists are are willing to share publicly, to be honest, especially when it comes to uh, talking about other, other artists <laughs> at the time. But uh, it's certainly fun to hear. Uh, some of those stories.
1: I'm guessing the Starwood was just the West Coast version of Studio 54, only it was the rock version, basically. A-
5: absolutely. That's what I, you know, David Forrest, who's who's uh, featured in the, in the movie, uh, who managed the Starwood uh, and booked at the Starwood and at the Whiskey in the late 70s, also managed Nikki Six's old band, London, and uh, Detective. I asked him kind of the same thing. It sounds like it was you know, the rock and roll version of Studio 54. And he said, yeah, and the way it was where, you know, anything went. And, uh, you know, again, you got you got a picture of time where there's, you know, no social media, no Internet, no cell phones. And, you know, I remember it was I, I know going off topic again, but talking to a buddy of mine that manages a strip club and he was talking about in, in the late 90s and uh, going into the early 2000s, you know, celebrities were be. Tommy Lee or actors, Keeper Sullivan, and all these guys, they would hang out at the strip clubs normally, and you know you would see tons of celebrities and industry people all the time at these strip clubs, especially in the '80s and '90s. But even even up until the, the around up until the late '90s, it started to slow down because that was when the cell phone cameras started coming out. Yeah, and he said that's what killed it. He said as soon as the, you know people were you know shooting. I remember strip clubs used to have a policy, no cell phones, no cell phones. But of course, they couldn't enforce that after a while. So, yeah. But, you know, again, that's probably what ended a lot of that. Why a lot of more known people, whether it be celebrities or industry people or whatever, don't go out at these these kind of places. You know, they don't want to be seen. Yeah. They don't want to get filmed.
1: No doubt. No doubt. Hey, have you ever wanted to do a documentary that didn't pan out?
5: No, not really, because I never really wanted to do a documentary until I got offered the Inside Metal right. uh, thing. You know, like I said, we it, it, the funny thing is, Carl and I, when we were doing the uh, Shockwaves video cast, we were actually talking about, wow, wouldn't it be great to do a documentary on the L.A. scene since you and I grew up in this era? And just like a week later is when I interviewed Joe and Joe said he was working on it and he wanted me involved in it. And I'm like, yeah, we were just talking about, you know, this is something that needs to be done. And, and again, I think so, what what so many people love about this documentary, all the artists and, and all the people that grew up in that era, particularly the, the first title that, you know, because that touch base before MTV and before that whole video era, the pioneers of L.A., hard rock and metal, uh, those two titles. That really, you know, people said this is so great that this finally got documented because there were it was such a huge scene. I mean, people would go out, you know, bands like Y&T, like I say, would come out from L.A., do three shows at the Starwood, two shows a night. You know, uh, Wolfgang would do six shows. This is an unsigned band would do six shows at the Whiskey. You know, Snow would do a a weekend at the Whiskey. Even up through the 80s, I remember Wasp would do a full weekend at the Troubadour. Armored Saint did a weekend at the Troubadour. But, you know, you would have some of these bands doing four nights and there would be 800 people in there every night. And this is a band that is unsigned. Yeah, That's unheard of now. You know, nobody goes out to shows like they used to back then. Because, you you know, back then you didn't have social media or YouTube or, you know, if you wanted to see a live band you or if you wanted to learn how to play guitar, you couldn't just pop in a video or go on YouTube or get some instructional video. You had to go out, buy a ticket to a show and get a front row seat or get as close as possible to the stage and try to figure out what that guy is playing, you know? Uh, or you had to listen on your record over and over again and take the needle and play it back and back and back. Yeah, so people were point. going out to shows, uh, you know, fans and musicians, you know, on, on a regular basis. And it was I, I do remember those those early Hollywood, you know, the Hollywood scene in the late 70s. And, and even in Orange County, I, you know, we talk about that, the Woodstock and Radio City and Concert Factory, the Golden Bear you know, this is just all in, in Orange County. You had tons of great venues that, you know, all the L.A. bands, you know, Motley Crue and Snow and Rat would come out. Then you would see, you know, the local bands, you know, August Red Moon, uh, uh, Leather Wolf and, you know, Dante Fox, who became Great White. You could see bands every night, man, in, in, in L.A. and Orange County. You wouldn't even have to drive to L.A. Orange County had, had, had tons of great live music at
1: that time. Right on. Speaking of live music, you saw not only the first Metallica show at Radio City, but you saw their second show opening for Saxon at the Whiskey. What do you remember about those shows? Was there growth between the first and second show for Metallica?
5: Nobody knew who Metallica was, and it was really kind of premature. Metallica were one of those bands. Really, the only seasoned musician, if, if you know, I guess season would be, uh, the word to use uh, would be Dave Mustaine. James Hetfield had played in some local bands, Leather Charm and some other bands where he just sang at the Woodstock and uh, clubs like that. Uh, But Mustaine was in a band called Panic. He played the local scene. Lars had never played out before. Ron McGovern, had never been on stage or never. He just started playing. He was James' roommate. And James basically showed him how to play bass and so when they, you know most bands you know started out doing backyard parties or whatever before they started doing the clubs metallica boom went straight first show at radio city uh which was right next door to the woodstock they were kind of like the the two metal clubs there in, in uh anaheim and uh you know they did that show and then they got somehow got a show opening up for Saxon one of the nights. Rat had one of the nights. And then Metallica had the second night. And uh, I believe it was due to the fact that Ron McGovney, uh, the bass player, who was uh, a photographer for Motley Crue back then, <laughs> got introduced to uh, Dee, Dee Keel at the Whiskey by Mickey Six. Because I guess they offered Motley Crue that show to open up for Saxon. But Molly Crew were too big; they're already packing the whiskey on their own at, at that point. So they said, "Hey, Ron," you know. They told he told the the, the promoter, "Hey, Ron, I got his friend Ron. He introduced Ron to Dee Dee, and Ron gave her a tape, and they got Metallica on the bill. So you know that just happened. I mean, no other band could open up for Saxon. I mean, nowadays you have to you know pay to play." you know, thousands of dollars to open up for name acts, you know, but back then they just were the right place at the right time and they got to the right person. And, uh, you know, but nobody really knew who Metallica was. And of course, nobody realized that Metallica were a cover band, Yeah, but nobody knew it because they were all songs that underground (laughs) new wave of British heavy metal songs that nobody heard of. Right. You know, the first set was like four diamond head songs, a blitzkrieg song, a, a sweet savage song and a savage song. Yeah. And uh, then I think their only original they did was hit the lights. So, but nobody really knew because nobody knew who diamond head was at that time. So
1: was the band good or was the band horrible
5: somewhere in between? Yeah. <laughs> Probably closer to horrible. No, no. They had the energy. They, they just weren't good. Players. They weren't experienced. Yeah. James was only a singer. Dave Mustaine did all the talking between songs. They sounded great. They played, you know, heavy and fast. They just didn't have that presence yet, you know. So, but they weren't horrible. For I mean, they actually every show they advanced. They advanced so much from the Radio City show to the Whiskey show, and then you know, going back to when I saw them open for Y&T, it was. We're only talking a matter of a few months, and it was like a whole other band. That was when James was playing guitar and singing, and it was. And that was when they were going up to the Bay Area. Yeah, you know, they were still living in LA, but they had done a couple of shows, a few shows in the Bay Area, and they got that confidence because they started playing up there to a fan base that people that really loved them. And then when they came back and they started doing shows in LA, it was like, damn, what happened? You know, this band just went from zero to 50, you know, like that. So, uh, yeah, they, they got good really fast.
2: <laughs> Bob, what are your thoughts on. Band versus brand, like, you know, you got the ACDCs, Van Halen, Metallica, Motley Crue, Foreigner, Maiden, Kiss, Nirvana. I mean, these are big name brands. Some bands have retired. Some have died off. Some you haven't heard from, like Van Halen. Like, can these names, these brands live forever? Well, I'm so glad you mentioned
5: that because that leads me into some I wanted to get into is the new documentary I'm working on called Band versus Brand, which will be coming out on Cleopatra any day now we're putting the finishing touches on it so we're going to deliver it to them probably within the, within the month and hopefully we'll get it out uh on a dvd and digital i'm pretty sure before the end of the year we'll probably do a big uh, screening in la and that was something i was always intrigued about and uh, i was talking to brian pereira the uh head of cleopatra and we we were having meetings uh and he liked the what I did with Inside Metal, and he kind of threw around the idea of me doing a documentary uh, for Cleopatra. And he talked about, uh, you know, we were just on a subject about exactly what you were talking about. I think we were talking about bands like Rat. You know, when this is at the time Bobby Blotzer was going out as Rat, and you know, we we're talking about how these artists, you know, are still going out there, one original member, and or may not even be the original member, you know. And we we're talking about Quiet Riot with Frankie Benali, because both of those bands had done stuff with Cleopatra and you know that they're still able to play casinos and pack the places. And it's just the fact of owning that name, the brand is more important than who's actually in the band. I mean, how many people know that when they see Foreigner, there's no original members unless they happen to catch them on a night when Mick Jones is playing with them, you know, Uh, not many people know that, but they sound great. And, you know, and that, that was always intriguing. And, uh, so that's a new movie that should be coming out real soon on Cleopatra. And we get into the, the hologram, which is another big topic. Uh, we talk uh, to members of the Dio Disciples and people that have been close with the hologram and uh, give the pros and cons. And, and the thing about, you know, my documentaries, I they're not one-sided. I'm not saying, you know, branding is bad or, we're, or I'm not trying to come off with a perception of, you know this is good or evil or this is bad or good it's just you know there's pros and cons to it you know and uh in some cases more cons than pros but you know in other cases you know you you got to look at it both ways with a hologram you know if you want these artists to live forever there's obviously not arena bands of that caliber anymore really once all the the bands you name the acdc scorpions iron maiden you know, Judas Priest, all these bands are on their final legs. Van Halen, once these bands are gone, I mean, you know, you still got, you know, Metallica, Slayer, you know, Slayer's calling it quits. So, you know, there's nothing left. So, are all the holograms going to be coming back on, you know, they already got the D.O. hologram. They're talking about a Lemmy hologram. You know, they're talking about even non metal stuff, you know, Prince, David Bowie, Michael Jackson. Is it good or bad? You know, who am I to say? I mean, for young people that, haven't had the chance to see Ronnie James Dio, the magic of Dio, I guess this is the closest they're going to get, you know? I mean, to me personally, it's, it just sounds a little bit weird since I've seen Dio, I knew Dio, I interviewed him, I've, you know, been a fan with him ever since the early rainbow days, as we, we talked about. So, uh, you know, but for younger fans, what else are they going to have to, to remind them of that great era of music? So just to let people know, because a lot of people kind of, Don't know the angle of this movie. It basically the artists give their conflicting opinions about it. And a lot of it comes down to merchandising, logos, the publishing, the ownership. Ownership of the name means so much. The brand means so much, not just as a band, but merchandise when it comes to T-shirts. And, of course, we have a whole chapter about Kiss. I mean, they've merchandised their name to, you know, over supposedly 3,000 different brandings that they've got, you know, from coffins to condoms to everything in between. So there's ownership of a name is a huge, huge, you know, goldmine if the band goes on to a legendary status.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that uh, DVD. That'll be great.
5: It's it's, it's coming along really good. I'm really happy with it because it really comes in for more of a music business angle. We don't have the big rock stars really on this. It's more industry people. Talking, We obviously have quite a few musicians uh, talking about that, too, and talking about the two versions of bands, bands that fight, you know, two versions of the Queensryche, of Great White, of L.A. Guns, all these other bands, Rat, of course, you know, uh, the the fighting of the name and how important that that is and how that's important great. it is to get agreements together early on. Yeah,
1: that's
2: yeah. great. Now, you're doing uh, – so the next up for you is this San Francisco music scene documentary, are you doing a crowdfunding thing for this too because you've done that with past DVDs? Well, we
5: only did that for the
2: first one. Oh, you um, only did it for the first one? Oh, okay.
5: Yeah, it was it was on like the trailers for the other ones. Uh, uh but that was cuz we released all the trailers at once. So, but we actually only did the crowdfunding, the fan back thing for the first one and uh you know, it was an experience. I don't want to say it was a disaster, but it was, you know, it's it's uh something you got to you know, I'm, I'm not into just continuously asking people for money. I thought it was going to be more uh, uh, their position, the people at fan back to generate people to put in money. but you know it comes down to you know uh, uh, wh- wh- the reason we did that initially was because we did a theater run with the ins- the first inside metal title, which was great. It was great to have uh, the pioneers of LA hard Rock and metal. Uh, we only did part one uh, that we screened on uh, the big screen to over 150 movie theaters throughout the nation, uh, which was awesome. Uh, it wasn't a big thing because it wasn't well promoted. But the, I'll tell you this: the places that promoted it, we had a couple places like the one uh, theater in Corona, a 500 seat theater in Corona, was packed because the radio station. Got behind it and promoted it, you know. Otherwise, a lot of these theaters nationwide they didn't even have the name on the marquee or this, you know. Just showed that it had potential. People that knew about the movie were interested, and so it was a good experience—the the whole fan back thing. But uh, uh, no, we, we we only did that for the first title. Okay. So for the San Francisco one, that that'll be coming out maybe the end of the year. That we're we're, we're like I said, I'm finishing up the banverse brand. That's going to come out first. A whole, that's a total separate thing total separate company bambers brand but the uh inside metal you know we, we we're still getting traction we just put out the uh rise of la thrash metal part two on digital it's on amazon prime and uh itunes i think it uh, just hit google play as well and uh we're really working that still so um we're, uh, we are we did all the interviews. We're at the editing stage of the, the San Francisco one. So it's being edited now. So hopefully we, we might be able to squeeze that in before the end of the year.
1: So you've got band versus brand, San Francisco music scene. You've already done all these L.A. Pioneers, thrash metal, hard rock and metal. And I think I read somewhere that you guys are actually considering doing like a New York and things like that. Is that true?
5: Well, we're going to see where this takes us. You know, I'm a purist when it comes to making these documentaries, as you know, and that's why uh, the uh, L.A. metal titles, I was a part of that scene. I grew up in Orange County in L.A., as as I said. I I, I lived through that. So that was a big thing for me. San Francisco, I remember that scene because I was a big fan of all the bands that came uh, down from San Francisco to L.A. and just doing the tape trading, the demos. I knew all the uh, local LA bands, you know, before they had records out through demos, you know, Exodus, Legacy, before they were Testament, you know, Broke His Helm, Vicious Rumors, Anvil Chorus, uh, you know, going back to uh, all that stuff. So I was a big part of that. But we got John Sternansky, who's going to do the narration. He was the editor, publisher for Metal Rendezvous. He grew up on the San Francisco Bay Area scene since the late 70s and uh, was a huge part of that whole scene so he helped me a a lot on this as did Ron Quintana and others so if we were to do one in New York I would need to pair up with somebody from New York that really knows the bands I mean I would love to do you know from the beginnings of uh, you know maybe the tail end of say a Blue Orser and Kiss leading into you know, Twisted Sister, Riot, Man of War, you know, there were so many great bands from New York, you know, The Rod, Cities, Virgin Steel, The Good Rats, you know, going to just regular hard rock. So many bands that were influential on the New York scene that I was well aware of. You know, it's a possibility. You know, it just depends. It's just a lot of work, man. It's a lot of work. And if I could get somebody in New York that I know quite a few people there that grew up on that scene. Uh, you know, the problem is, is, you know, you can't really make a living doing this uh, on a scene where I could tell somebody to quit their job to put devote to, to this full time. Because it really is kind of to, to delve into this. It really is kind of a full time job, you know, especially since we'll be traveling to New York with a camera person and, you know, the expense involved. So I don't know. We'll see. We, we'll see where it goes. I'm just right now going to do the San Francisco one. I'd really love to do it on the new wave of British heavy metal. There's been some some done on new wave of British heavy metal, but not super extensively. And I know a, a few friends, I actually got a good buddy of mine, Jeff Gillespie, who was part of that scene. He was in a band that were on Neat Records, Sabre. And he's the one that actually put that compilation, a new wave of British heavy metal compilation together with Lars many years ago in the 90s. Uh, so, you know, but, you know, again, it's the expense to put that together, but, you know, I I think it would be cool, you know, but we'll see, we'll see what happens.
1: Give me a song of, of something more current that, uh, you're listening to these days that, uh, you would like to rock out with now.
5: How about some night Demon? speaking of new wave of British heavy metal? Uh, you just reminded me a night demon, great new band that definitely go back to that new wave of British heavy metal era. And do it great uh, Jarvis the lead singer awesome dude uh, he puts on the frosted fire festivals they're doing one in England they're doing one again in Ventura in October which I plan to go to he also fronts uh, a Jaguar on occasion when Jaguar go out on tour one of my favorite uh, new waybridge metal bands go ahead play some from their current album <laughs>
1: It's been awesome talking to you. There's so much stuff. We could probably sit here and talk about rock and roll all night long, truthfully, because I think that we've only really just sort of scratched the surface, and I'm having a great time, but I think that... um at an hour and 25 minutes, we probably better uh, make part two a little bit later. So we'll we'll divide this up the same as we divide up uh, the uh, Pioneers of Metal. How's that sound?
5: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. All
1: right. We're going to do a lightning round with you. or In uh, tribute to Metallica, we're going to do a ride the lightning round with you. Is that cool? Sounds cool. Last album you purchased or downloaded, whatever.
5: The new Angel Witch.
1: Okay. Your favorite movie?
5: Of all time? Yeah. Ooh, that's a tough one. I usually go with Dazed and Confused, but I think I'm gonna go with Foobar.
1: I don't know Foobar, but I do know Dazed and Confused.
5: Actually Foobar Balls to the Wall. The second one I actually like even better. It's a couple of Canadian guys, a couple of metal heads. You'll love it, dude.
1: That's what it's called? Foobar?
5: It's called Foobar. Second one is Foobar Balls to the Wall. So either one of those. uh,
1: I'm checking them out. Yeah. Metallica, Armored Saint, or Slayer?
5: Uh, I got to go with Armored Saint. They're my friends. I've known them forever. They've been my favorite on the local scene, you know, just prior to Metallica and Slayer. Love Armored Saint, and they're still going strong. Yeah, got to go Armored Saint on that.
1: Right on. Band you wished you'd seen back in the day?
5: Oh, wow. I'd have to go with Zeppelin because I never saw them live. Yeah
1: band you want to see live in 2018
5: wow you mean a new band that i haven't seen
1: uh, it doesn't matter new or old just somebody you want to see in 2018
5: oh well i do want to see slayer next month uh our farewell tour always a great live band we'll go with slayer on that one since right. i didn't pick them
1: the last performance for slayer yeah all right. Would you rather see a club gig or a major uh, uh, show, like a major uh, arena show?
5: It depends. Depends on the artist. Nowadays, probably an arena show because they're far and few between, and club gigs aren't the way they used to. Back in the day, I would have definitely preferred a club gig, especially seeing a national act. But, yeah, you know what? I'll still go club. I I still like the intimacy. Uh, we're, I mean, we're, we're talking if it's a big, packed club, like, uh, you know, Seeing a band like Saxon Armored Sane in a big club, yeah, i definitely go club.
2: How about uh, best concert you've seen? Like when somebody asks you, what's the best concert you ever saw, even back in the club days?
5: I always had to go to that ACDC because it was my first concert with Bon Scott. And just seeing that, it was just prior to him passing. I would say that and the 1980 British Steel Tour, uh, Judas Priest, also at Long Beach Arena. That was just unbelievable. Uh, so many great shows. Again, I was. those were like my first shows, so maybe it had a much larger impact, but still resonates today.
2: Yeah. Three bands that didn't get enough uh, play back in the day. London, Detective, or Snow? I'm going to go with Snow. <laughs> so <laughs> Stephen wrote that in the notes just now. He goes, he's going to choose Snow. <laughs> i had
1: re- i had read that you were uh you you preferred snow what what were so that's the cavazzo brothers were in snow so what right. what were they like
5: oh dude they were awesome in fact uh, carlos i i had bought their cd at their they did a reunion show at the whiskey and i loaned it out to a friend hadn't got it so carlos just sent me a new copy of their old demos which i used to love i used to uh listened to it on the original KNAC before they were pure rock. They were just like a real local band that had a show called Homegrown. And Snow were featured on it. This had to be 1980. And they had, uh, no, it was probably 79, because their EP came out in 80. And they were still playing the demos of We're Gonna Make It and uh, It's a Crazy Life. And I just heard them, and I just fell in love. And then I saw them playing live. I wasn't old enough to go, go out to Hollywood, but you know, they played live at the Woodstock and played a place right by my house in Huntington Beach. Uh, it was a great bill. It was Snow a la carte, who were like the Huntington Beach heroes. Uh Snow a la carte and Max Havoc, a great triple bill at a place called Old World in uh Huntington Beach. So, uh yeah, Snow, I just thought were great. You know, Detective did get a bit of airplay, you know, Grim Reaper and... uh what was the other song that got, uh, help me up, got a bit of airplay and one more heartache, but snow never really, apart from locally on Carol Q, which was a very local station at the time in KNC, they never got to any national airplay. So we'll go with snow.
1: Was snow just a straight ahead, hard rock band or what? What were they like? They were very
5: good. Everyone compared them to Van Halen cause they were like right off the heels of Van Halen. The singer was, uh, you know, a bit David Lee Roth. He didn't look like. I mean, a dark hair, total different stage presence. But uh, you know, they say you know he, the way he sang and, and stuff. He was very uh, sexual innuendos. You know, lyric wise, they were just a fun band, but much heavier. They were a heavy. Uh, you know, uh, you listen to the song "Crack the Whip." That's the song that opens up the uh, inside metal pioneers of LA hard rock and metal.
1: Yeah,
5: just opening riff. Consider that's 1979. You know, that Carlos Cavazzo play, I, you know, I was really kind of disappointed when Carlos joined Quiet Riot because he wasn't the shredder that he was in Snow. And Snow, he just shredded all over the place. Huh. But, you know, again, that was the days of Van Halen. And, you know, you had to compete because on the circuit you had George Lynch playing with Exciter. You had Carlos with Snow. You had Randy Rose with Quiet Riot. You know, you had Dave Medicchetti, you know, playing LA all the time with YNT and you know, if you were an LA band, uh, you had to shred on guitar. And uh, uh, Snow definitely had some shredding guitar work.
2: How do you listen to music nowadays? Do you purchase physical products still? Do you do digital? you stream?
5: Unfortunately, I stream uh, most of the stuff just because it's easy access. And uh, nowadays, don't you know, I got the physical CDs to the Angel Witch and the Snow and uh, other stuff. People I will send me the physical. Uh, stuff but nowadays with the way things are i kind of got sucked into the whole bullshit of streaming uh be just because of easy access you know it makes sense i mean i think everyone nowadays you got instant access to any song in the world through youtube i don't even really do the spotify thing much but you know nowadays it's it's quicker I i i must get 50 downloads a week from record labels you know downloads of their new releases for me to sit down and download it and then to put it all into my itunes and do all that the work it takes i could just pop it right up on youtube and listen right off there so it's pretty amazing i don't think it's fair for the artist but unfortunately that's just the way it is today and uh i do still like the physical product but uh, to be honest as far as listening i do like the easy access of just boom Uh, Either on my iTunes or streaming.
2: Yeah, you're on a deserted island. Name two albums you gotta have with you. Physical Graffiti because it's a double
5: album, (laughs) and I love that every song is completely different on that album. And it'll be between again Rising and Sabotage. I'll go. uh, Should I go old school? You know, as as many times as I've heard those albums, I'm still not not sick of them let's go sabotage
2: and physical graffiti. Yeah. How about a uh, best documentary you've seen that you were not involved with? Like, you're like, man, now that's a documentary I want to do. Wow. A music documentary or. doesn't matter. Okay.
5: Um, God, I've seen so many. I mean, music wise, you know, I think Sam Dunn has done some great work. There's, you know, I, I just watched so many documentaries now on Netflix. You know, there was a, uh, One, I really liked it. I can't remember the name of it. You probably, uh, know it. Uh, it was about the, I just thought because it was so interesting. It was about, God, I'm trying to think, uh, what was the name? It's on the tip of my tongue. It was a guy that was huge in South Africa, but he was, he was like from Chicago and he was like as big as Elvis in South Africa, but nobody knew it. He, and they were all bootleg albums that came out there. Or the record company put them out there, but he never got paid. And he was supposedly Bob Dylan before Dylan. I mean, great lyrics. And his stuff is really awesome because they play it on the, and they they show people in South Africa, they said everybody from the late 70s into the 80s owned this guy's record. Searching for Sugarman, I think it's called.
6: Huh.
5: I don't know if the artist's name was Sugarman or the guy that did the, But Searching for Sugarman, I think, is something like that. I just thought it was pretty extraordinary. It's so well done. It's basically they were looking to find him because the rumor was that the guy had died. And the guy's now in his 60s, and he's got like a construction business, gave up music, and they actually found him. But just what they went through to try to find him, going through the record companies, talking to the labels that put out his records— Kept reissuing his records and sending them to South Africa without his permission or his knowledge. It's, it's a crazy movie, but it's a really, I thought it was brilliantly done.
2: Wow. And then, you know, the hardest ones always last Randy Rhodes or Eddie Van Halen? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go Randy Rhodes.
5: Not that Eddie Van Halen was overrated because he was obviously phenomenal and groundbreaking, but, you know, I think. Randy Rhodes, you know, was around that era, you know, with Quiet Riot, of course. And, uh, you know, he wasn't doing the tapping per se, but he just had more of a classical feel to him. And I liked his tone better. So I'll go Randy Rhodes.
2: Well, you survived, my man.
1: <laughs> you did <laughs> well, did man. You did really well on that, actually. <laughs> that was a great job.
5: Well, thank you, man. I well, it was. It was great. It's always fun to chat with uh, old-school metal guys about the early days.
1: That's it, man. That's why this was so comfortable. That's why this conversation was so comfortable, because you clearly know your shit, and Sonny and I both feel like we know our shit, so it's it's cool, man. I I really enjoyed this conversation, man.
5: Well, thank you. I mean, it's definitely great to uh, be interviewed by people that, are well aware of that and grew up during that era and could relate to what I'm saying, and all the questions you asked were uh perfect. So,
2: I'm using your DVDs as an education to my son, especially because he loves some of that 80s music, he's a huge maiden fan. But, uh, I'm using it as an education because you know, I want to brainwash him somehow, and sometimes dad always talking doesn't always work, so it's like, look, somebody else is talking, and look, this is what happened. <laughs> Cool, dude. That's that's so that's so flattering to hear that you know work that
5: I was involved with is is being used to help future generations' knowledge about metal. I, I did a, a lecture, a Skype lecture for the University of Helsinki. They actually have a course on heavy metal. That's you know Finland. Like heavy metal is a lifestyle in Finland. It's, it's huge, and the University actually has a course on heavy metal, and I did a Skype lecture for them. And uh, that's awesome. It was just so cool, dude. These people in Finland knew more about the LA metal scene than I did. Practically, <laughs> they knew all about. I mean, they were talking about Wasp and Warrior and Malice and all. I'm like, how the hell do you guys know this stuff? And these are college students. You know, it was insane. So it's great to see this this type of music. Especially this underground music living on, you know. So that's the one advantage of the internet is, is that people could get exposed to this music that otherwise they probably wouldn't have been exposed to. So I just want to thank the both of you for this opportunity. And I want to thank, you know, uh, you know, the inside metal staff, you know, Warren Froyle, Joe Floyd, Carl Alvarez and everyone that was involved, the uh, Curtis Donvito, uh, Robert Gaston, the editors, they helped immensely on this. I couldn't have done it on my own and uh, Enrico Lari, who edited the uh, LA Metal Scene Explodes and all the photographers and uh, artists that contributed so uh, yeah I always got to give them props because uh, you know like I said without them without the fans you know this this wouldn't be possible
1: yeah and we'll tie uh, we'll tie all the information to each one of these individual DVDs uh, in our show notes so if you're listening to this Podcast, you don't have to worry about trying to hurry and write stuff down. Just go to the show notes at grownuprock g-r-o-w-i-n-u-p-r-o-c-k.com g r o w i n u p r o c k dot com, and we will have all the links and all the show notes to each one of these DVDs and where you can get it and how you can see it and all that other stuff. Well,
5: awesome, Stephen, Sunny, Hollywood. I
1: appreciate it, Bob. It has been a pleasure, my friend. We are going to say goodbye, but we will do a shuffle, rattle, and roll. We will talk to everybody next week. Until then, peace out. See you later.
0: Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
6: Nights and sails on the horizon, dragon ships in sight, cancer in. Yeah,